Hello, this is Notes from the Back Row. A podcast like no other. Different themes, rotating hosts, and so much more. So strap in for a veritable cinematic Coney Island of the mind. Welcome to another episode of Notes from the Back Row, a magazine-like podcast feed featuring everything from roundtable discussions, ongoing themed series, and more. Please follow us online at Back Row Cine Blog on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and go to back-road.com for more written content, as well as a link to our Patreon, where you can gain access to early episodes and bonus content, like the first episode of a brand new show for Back Row called Bottoms Up, where we discuss movies that sit at the bottom of a film industry personality's letterbox page. The first episode is about Larry Cohen's film As Good As Dead from 1995. So today, I'm your co-host, Dan Gorman, and as always, I am embracing distant togetherness with my good friend and co-host... Carlo, hey. Carlo, hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) It's another episode of our series, Hoser Horror, where we take a look at two movies and decide whether or not they are worthy of being labeled essential in the canon of Canadian horror movies. Uh, so today is special because we have a guest with us, creator of the long-running Made for TV Mayhem blog, co-host of the Made for TV Mayhem podcast, and editor of the phenomenal Are You in the House Alone, a TV movie compendium book, and so much more. Please give a warm Canadian welcome to Amanda Reyes. Hi, thanks so much. That was really nice. I'm, I'm glad you liked the book so much. Yeah, it's a really cool, amazing book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, we yeah. worked really hard on it, and I'm really uh, proud of it and excited yeah. that people really seem to be interested in TV movies. And so you started your blog about TV movies, like, in 2008, right? Ooh, like you a- know better than me. Yeah, it was, it was a while ago. <laughs> I know it's been, over, a long yeah, time it's been over a decade, and it just sort of came to me. There have been a couple of blogs, but they've done, like, just, like, three movies, and then I think they were like, well, what do I do after Satan School for Girls and Dark Knight of the Scarecrow? And, and, yeah. and so I thought, well, here's a gap of film history that is really interesting and something that I've loved all my life. I was reared on it. And so I'm just going to write about TV movies. And I started with the basics, but then I started deep diving and it turned out people were really interested in Mm -hmm. all kinds of TV movies. So it was fun. Yeah. Did did your like interest and love of TV movies begin like when you were younger? Yeah. I think the first horror movies I actually saw were Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and um, Gargoyles. And I was like four when I saw them and it was a great gateway. And it was interesting. They were both monster movies, but were like gargoyles for me was about being fascinated by the monsters. They were really sympathetic and they were beautiful to look at. And I love them, but in don't be afraid of the dark, even though they're much smaller, they terrified me. And I actually don't think I saw all of don't be afraid of the dark till I was an adult because I, it was so horrifying for me to watch that movie. (laughs) And so, um, they both really stuck with me over the years. And also, you know, um, I don't know how old you guys are, but I'm in my forties and in the seventies, the, um, 
we only had a couple stations. And so our local channel mm. would often play TV movies on the weekends and stuff. And so, like, I saw Trilogy of Terror. Like, just their Saturday afternoon programming was really good for, like, small screen horror. And so mm. I ended up getting exposed to a lot of these movies, not realizing that they were theatrical or TV. I just, they were just good, and I watched them. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah. And then when I was a teenager, you know, the 80s had a lot of great TV movies. And it was something to do because I wasn't, I was a very nerdy kid, and I didn't have a lot of friends, and I didn't go to the movies a lot. So I watched a lot of mm. what was presented to me on TV and we didn't have cable till I was like 17. So, so a lot of it was just like Suzanne Plachette in a stranger waits or whatever, you know, it's like, Ooh, this is going to be good. And so that was my night. And so, yeah, so my whole life they've been there. I just didn't really recognize them as a separate medium until later mm. on, um, in the two thousands when I kind of rediscovered them and went back and started rewatching a lot of Ooh. stuff. Yeah. I figured it'd be interesting to ask you on the show because I feel like Canadian horror movies and in particular and made for TV horror, they have a lot in common and that they're trying to do more with less resources from a position where they're, uh, kind of subject to a lot of scrutiny and not considered as legit as like either in the case of Canadian cinema, American releases or in the case of TV movies as theatrical, uh, movies by critics at least yeah that's a really fascinating comparison and and in general i kind of do sort of relate tv movies to b movies for a lot of different reasons mm. i hadn't thought of about a canadian but yeah you're distilling it even further into like mm. these sort of margins which is really interesting and there's probably an academic paper in there that i'm thinking <laughs> about now that's really amazing yeah. but like you're right because so the thing about tv movies and b movies in general is that um, a lot of times, they, I don't want to say actors on their way out, but a lot of uh, actors who were get, having a harder time getting A-list work would show up yeah. in horror movies or in TV movies. Uh, and it was a great venue for them, who, especially actors who, like William Shatner, got to do a variety of different things because of both the B-movie world and the TV movie world. They also had very low budgets, um, both of them, and they also had very short shooting schedules. And the advertising campaigns were actually really similar, too. So, like, I lecture about TV movies all over the world, and one of the things I always talk about no matter what the topic is is tv movie advertising and mm. if you have access to look at tv movie um tv guide ads which you can find just online um you'll see that they use a lot of the same things that um regular horror movies were doing to get audiences to watch and of course they're different in a lot of ways because even though something like prom night and killer party have very little in the way of nudity they still can have it there's that option right or even just to curse um, where TV movies can't even do that. So so they have different approaches ultimately at the end, but the way they get there and the way they get the audiences in is very similar. And I love the idea of um, thinking about Canadian horror as sort of this extra scrutinized thing. Although I do think horror movie fans in general embrace Canadian horror. That whole tax shelter thing brought out a lot of yeah. films mm -hmm. that people really hold close to their heart. And, um, totally. yeah, so it ended up sort of doing the opposite of, I think where it originally started, whereas people were ranking it into the slasher horror movie world critically and, and deriding it, but then even more so because it was a Canadian ripoff of something like mm -hmm. a John Carpenter production or whatever, you mm -hmm. know, I think it even goes one step 
deeper because I believe, Carlo, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that when we talked to Paul from Canucksploitation in, in our interview with him, he was even talking about how sometimes people watch Canadian horror movies and they'll say like, oh, it looks like cheap or it looks kind yeah, of like yeah, yeah. there's no style to it because it almost looks like a TV movie, which is something that people I find erroneously say a lot yeah. about TV movies. But apparently like there was a lot of people in Canada doing work on television so that when movies came here to shoot in the tax shelter era or when Canadian movies were being produced, they were getting a lot of behind the scenes talent from people that were doing television work. And that's why they kind of like feel similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's totally. that's another great comparison too, because TV movie directors are what they call journeymen, you know, who can are adept at like a little bit of everything. And mm-hmm. so TV movie, uh, a lot of TV movie filmmakers would go on to do theatricals here and there. And of course now I'm blanking, but I think Corey Allen was mainly a TV movie guy and he did, um, Avalanche maybe that disaster. Mm, we did yeah. one of those. Mm, yeah. And, um, and so I think it was Corey Allen. And, um, so, so you'll see a lot of that, but, but the thing is TV, the thing about TV is that those filmmakers know how to get things done and get it done right. And maybe it follows a more clear blueprint than a theatrical would that has a chance to have take more artistic license and things, but the yeah. product ends up being pretty solid at the end. So I could see why, um, a Canadian tax shelter film where they want to get it done sort of quick and dirty would turn to mm-hmm. TV because those guys know what yeah. they're doing. Awesome. Well, we're excited that you're here. And yeah, if you don't know already, go to made for TV mayhem. It's an amazing blog and yeah, an amazing podcast too. Thank you. So let's uh, get into our movies. We are here to talk about two Canadian slashers. The first of which we will discuss is 1980s Prom Night. There's a special night in the lives of all of us. A night to be beautiful, to be desirable. A night we can break all the rules and make our own. Prom Night. They're too old for games. But someone still wants to play. Someone has come to the prom alone. Someone who watches in the silent corridors. Someone who waits until no one can help. Prom night. If you're not back by midnight, you won't be coming home. Starring Leslie Nielsen, Jamie Lee Curtis, Casey Stevens, and more. This is directed by Paul Lynch, who we have discussed previously on the podcast. The tagline for this movie is, If you're not back by midnight, you won't be coming home. And the synopsis is, At a high school senior prom, a masked killer stalks four teenagers who were responsible for the accidental death of a classmate six years previously. It had a budget of around $1.5 million. It was a bit of a box office success. It made almost $15 million, which is amazing, um, and was produced by Prom Night Productions and distributed by Astral Films in Canada, shot in and around Toronto. Uh, Lots of stuff in here that I recognize. Scarborough Bluffs and Don Mills Collegiate Institute is the school. But uh, this is, you know, one of the main slashers from the era. You know, it, this is 1980. This is a big one. And you both had seen this previously, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. 
Okay. This was technically my first time watching it all the way through. Mm -hmm. I had seen clips of this movie all throughout growing up, seen it, bits of it on TV, bits of it at friends' houses, but this was the first time I sat down and was like, tonight I'm watching Prom Night. (laughs) Okay, cool. Uh, I'd seen it once before, but it must have been like 10 years ago, so I couldn't really remember a lot of it. Uh, Definitely forgot about the twist like Mm. who ended up being the killer but yeah uh i was pretty into it this time brought like no expectations to it but uh it's it's prom night basically the canadian slasher franchise is there another canadian slasher franchise i'm I'm tempted to say well this is more like horror like scanners you've got several scanners scanners, but that's not a slasher so if we're talking about like a slasher slasher with Mm -hmm, multiple entries for sure yeah so this was definitely a big success obviously like there was multiple movies it was the highest grossing horror film you know from canada so it it was definitely made its mark (laughs) yeah apparently better reviews uh, i read than friday the 13th but didn't really have the same impact even though there were sequels uh Mm. which was kind of interesting to me um like why friday the 13th resonated more than prom night and thinking maybe friday the 13th was just more graphic in, in various ways yeah Yeah, so I'll tell you my history with Prom Night. It's interesting that we're talking about TV because my first time seeing this was actually on TV. It came on network Mm. television, whatever, like the year after it premiered in the theaters. And I watched most of it. And um, I don't know why I'm remembering this just now, but one of my favorite childhood memories, actually, is that the day after Prom Night aired, um, and is it okay to be a little spoilery at the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. That's fine. Okay, so... um, Everybody at my in my class, we had show and tell the next day because it aired on Sunday night. I think Monday we came into school and did show and tell, and everybody was talked about Lou's decapitation scene. Like literally, <laughs> that was what everybody wanted to talk about. <laughs> so for show and tell, we all told, and we talked about that scene, how amazing it was. And I don't remember how it looked on mm-hmm. TV. They must have had to edit it. But um, <laughs> and through the years, this became a very important film to me, and I don't know why, but. Um, it, I started watching it a lot as an adult when I was getting into slashers, and I've written extensively about it. I wrote an essay for a book called Butcher Knives and Body Counts about this movie. Mm. And I also, when I went back to school a few years ago, my um, undergrad dissertation was on Prom Night and He Knows You're Alone. And so I've actually written like 50 pages about this movie um, oh, yeah, nice. like a dissertation. And, um, so there's a lot going on with it. And it's, it's interesting what you're saying about how it didn't kind of have the same influence as Friday the 13th. And that's kind of mm-hmm. amazing to me because subtextually it's doing so much. And I think through the years it's really endured because of that, but it just yeah. didn't catch on. And I think you're right because I think I heard somewhere that it was originally supposed to be a thriller. And the slasher elements came in kind of later after the casting and everything, because um, slashers were doing so well. And Jamie Lee Curtis, I think in the end, it might be one of her least favorite of the horror adventures that she did. I'm, I can't, I'm doing oh, this okay. off the top of my head, but I think that she yeah. was a little disappointed with uh, it ultimately because they inserted things that weren't supposed to be there. It was supposed to be more psychological, I think, originally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I also read that originally this was supposed to be about a killer gynecologist to cash in on Halloween. But I don't really see how that ties into Halloween. No. Yeah. Like, I, I think I read that on IMDb uh, as trivia. And honestly, the only thing it has in common, like Prom Night, is the, like the misdirect 
also kind of a spoiler, uh, of this framed sex offender who escaped from the hospital. Like, um, they kind of make you think it was uh, him doing the, the killing and everything. Yeah. But, yeah, apparently yeah. they told Paul Lynch it would be in bad taste, so they just nixed that, which, <laughs> well, you know, it, good. Probably. It kind of works, because and I know we'll talk about the ending, but the ending is where the whole heart of the film comes into play. It's mm. like where it's it's like... In retrospect, when you look at everything that happened, it all makes sense. And, and not only makes sense, but it has a really emotional impact. Unlike yeah, most slashers, when they reveal the killer, there's nothing quite like the end of this film. Yeah, there's also, like, I can't really think of a lot of slashers from the top of my head that have, like, a sympathetic killer, basically. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think, to a degree, um, it depends on, like... So, for instance, the burning, um, mm. like... He's not that nice, but at the same time, he had a horrible prank pulled on him. So I think yeah. there is sympathy. Angela in Sleepaway Camp was sort of forced mm -hmm. to like. There's so I think it depends on how you look at it. And so that's true. So, but I'm so just so you know, I'm a slasher fanatic. It's my second favorite <laughs> thing. And so I, as a woman into horror, especially when I was younger, I got told a lot of times that I was stupid for liking these trashy films, and I had to learn to defend them. So I think I have an extra eye out for yeah. things and mm -hmm. so i tend to be more like well no this is in there you know what i mean and so when it when i think most people casually watching these films are like really you know but but i see yeah. it. i think mm -hmm. i think there is there can be you can see sympathy in some like madman no that guy's just crazy but like <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. in general i i think that sometimes because so the thing about the slasher blueprint i don't know if anybody here's ever read um games of terror by veridica but she was the first person before carol clover to really kind of dissect the slasher movie and um and she does it in a different way she uses cultural uh theory as compared to psychoanalytic theory and mm. um so she she um lays out the blueprint of the slasher and one of the things is um that something traumatic happens in the first part and then then we get into some time passes and then we get into the modern day and then something triggers the killer and so so that in and of itself suggests something psychological happening so when you think about friday the 13th that first film is really kind of gut-wrenching when you think about why mrs Voorhees did mm -hmm. what she yeah. did and so so i see i see it and so i think just the trigger quote unquote in and of itself makes me think that maybe there is um sympathy that can be given to some of the killers but that's just my opinion yeah no that's interesting it's a very good point actually i've read men women and chainsaws but i've never read that so that sounds really fascinating yeah i'm, I'm, I'm gonna talk about another book later but i i highly recommend veridica she was actually a creative consultant on he knows you're alone which is why i think oh. that movie has such an amazing uh, dynamic between the women and we'll talk about that when we get to killer party but anyway um yeah it's a hard book to find but it's interesting i don't think it's perfect but neither is men women and chainsaws you know but yeah. they're foundations to think about these movies and it's really worthwhile yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right, too, about Jamie Lee Curtis and kind of, you know, this point in her career, because, you know, prom night is September 1980 in Canada and Terror Train is October 1980. And, and I think, you know, this is maybe maybe not. Is it maybe the peak of, of kind of like her maybe feeling like these movies are becoming something that she doesn't necessarily want to be like, this is all I'm known yeah. for. Hmm. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. So, um, um, two things. First of all, in Terror Train, that's a very sympathetic killer as well, I think, in a way, because he hmm. was really, they did a number on that guy. But, um, yeah. you know, and so it's hard to almost like the people who did it, uh, especially the two guys. But, um, 
Um, also, yeah. so so we're in the middle of a pandemic, and one of the things that's going on here is Lionsgate is um, streaming movies once a week on um, YouTube to kind of have this sort of unity of going to the theater, and they're getting Jamie Lee Curtis to host the opening segment. Oh. So I watched the one she did last night, which was for Hunger Games. I didn't watch the movie, but... I watched the opening, and one of the things she did that was so amazing, I think at the beginning of her career, she really sort of was like, I don't want to do this forever, but now she's really embraced it, obviously coming back to this last Halloween, which she was tremendous in, but she was talking about how she much she loves movies with strong female characters, and she picks up a little Laurie Strode doll, and she actually says, Laurie's in the house, and it was Mm -hmm. so amazing (laughs) to see that, to have her do that after all these years of feeling like she kind of... Um, shunned those movies, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think at this point in her career, she was wor- maybe worried about stereotyping and maybe not loving the uh, outcome yeah. of the films, like like what the final product was. Totally. And I feel like, you know, at the time, it, I could also completely understand, you know, you're making these movies, and for her, there was probably, like you're saying, an, an element of, I want to play very strong women, and I'm, I'm, you know, attracted to these roles where the 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 final girl and, you know, surviving these horrific things, and yet, you know, you're you're turning around and seeing, you know, like Roger Ebert and, and Gene Siskel on TV saying, like, these are the most offensive towards women movies ever, which, like, they have a they it's it's troubling because it's like they they do have a point for some movies but they're also lumping you know every single movie in with this you know sort of trend of movies that have misogyny in them and it's like they they don't seem like they want to sift through and find what some of these movies are actually trying to get at you know and so i could understand in the era seeing this reaction to like these are trash and being like oh my god what am i associating you know like i could see it being a conflicting time yeah for sure and that's that's interesting because when we're in the moment it's really hard sometimes to see what's actually happening it takes space mm-hmm, yeah. And um, and so that's all it took, because, I mean, the fact that slashers were in 2020 and the fact that slashers are still like not only being made, yeah. but like people are going back and these things are coming out on Blu-ray and people are going nuts mm-hmm. for it. And yeah. it's like and, and not only that, but different dialogues have happened through the years. So uh, men, women and chainsaws really set the tone for slashers for years. But now a lot of people, myself included, are saying, well, some of it's interesting, but she didn't get all of it right. And and there's been other writings now from women, especially, who um, who find a lot of interesting fast facets to it and also who are drawn to it. And I didn't fully understand why I liked them so much till I got older myself and I could look back and see the women in them and, and finally start to um, analyze my own feelings towards them. But um, but yeah, in the moment, it was just like blood and guts and like how gory can it get and this and that but they were actually doing a lot of different things in their cultural moment that it just took some space to understand how how do you two feel about prom night specifically in the sense of you know the general sort of critical consensus of this movie when it came out was it's inferior to something like halloween but maybe superior to something like friday the 13th you know yeah and and over the years i think for me personally i kind of didn't jump to watch this movie because a lot of the like the people i grew up with were very like when i the slasher fans that i knew were all very like gore houndy kind of dudes and it was very like prom night's boring and you know and i don't necessarily think that's totally true <laughs> no it's not it's it's different though i i mean i guess i haven't really looked so much at the critical analysis of it when it came out i think it got sort of mixed reviews 
Um, I don't know if you guys listen to the story continues, but you know, Justin Kurzweil, right. Who he's been posting on his, um, social media, some prom night reviews, and they were kind of across the board. Some people kind of appreciated it because it did have sort of a psychological element to it. And I think the ending had an impact and some people were like, Oh, this is just a rip off of everything that's coming out right now, you know? And, um, I would say technically speaking, Almost every slasher that came out after Halloween is going to be inferior because <laughs> yeah. because it's a John Carpenter joint. And even though there's there's no real story to it, technically it is one of the most beautifully shot films mm, of that yeah. kind. And and very little will ever touch it. But but why compare it to that? You don't need yeah, to. Yeah, true. You know. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it probably and Prom Night isn't as. It's to me. It's better than Friday Thirteenth. I love Friday Thirteenth, but but I think I think also Friday Thirteenth has more technical prowess behind it. I think um, Halloween looks very much um, A to B, and it's not trying to be super stylish in a lot of ways, but it it's doing something else that the other movies aren't doing with its story. So that sets it apart. Yeah, I uh, I also saw when I asked you to do the podcast um, that one of your most watched movies uh, aside from these two is Halloween Two, oh, which I yeah. thought was interesting because. Like not a lot of people hold that in very high regard, but it's an interesting choice to watch Halloween 2 more than 1. Is there a specific reason? Well, Lance Guest is in it, so, um, <laughs> of course. But also, it's interesting. So, Halloween 2 used to come on TV all the time when I was a teenager on TBS or whatever. And the TV edit's actually oh. a lot different than the theatrical. And when mm -hmm. I finally saw the theatrical, I was like, what is this? This isn't the movie I've been watching. I prefer the TV edit, too, which I know is really uh, puts me out oh. there because the TV edit doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's what I grew up Okay. But I like okay. it because the same reason why I think Jaws is a better movie than Jaws 2, but I watch Jaws 2 all the time because more shark, right? Yeah. More <laughs> killing. It's like, and yeah. it's a slasher on the water. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Mm. And Halloween 2 just takes everything that Halloween was doing and then ups it like times mm. 10. And so it's got a lot of the same elements as the original film, including Jamie Lee Curtis, but everything is like faster and harder. And I'm not saying yeah. that's always better, but there's mm. just something about that movie that just like goes 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 and it's really pleasurable yeah, yeah, yeah. and fun and it's popcorny and um yeah. and i do, i like that halloween takes its time but halloween 2 just gets to the punch and it's just something i can just sit and watch and it's a lot of fun for me i like the characters i like the setting so yeah it's just mm. something that i just sort of gravitated towards but yeah i watch it all the time okay cool <laughs> yeah I, I i like halloween 2 as well um i don't know which i like better i, I need to watch them again yeah it's it different it's like it's like jaws is a perfect film there's i'm sorry i have rats and they're tussling so you might hear some noise <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> they're right next to the desk um so um like jaws there's nothing will ever touch jaws jaws is the best movie ever made as far as i'm concerned but jaws 2 is the one i always want to watch you know what i mean it's, mm -hmm. just, it's just different it's just a more i like i like to escape and i think jaws 2 it lets you just sort of sit back and you just let the film do the driving for you um, yeah, anyway, as of my thoughts on Prom Night, uh, like I said, it's been a while since I first watched it, but I definitely like this more than I remembered. Like, uh, we did Humongous not too long ago, which is also a Paul I Lynch love movie. It. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was also good. And it just made me nostalgic for slashers. Like, I don't indulge in slashers as much throughout the year as I do towards like September, October ish, when it starts getting towards Halloween. But yeah, especially like this type of early 80s last days of disco kind of slow build up archetypical ish um and it's starting to be the ideal weather for him over here as well like with spring in full effect like i don't know why but it's just 
sunny vibes equal slashers to me. Like maybe maybe it's all the ones that are set up summer camps yeah. and have influenced it. And I don't know, like watching horror movies is kind of a party, which is what people do during the summer. Like I don't go out and party, but I watch movies. That's my party. So. <laughs> yeah. It's a good party. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think over time I'm going to appreciate prom night more than I did on my first watch, but once and for all sitting down and watching it all the way through after watching some more of Paul Lynch's stuff, like we did cross country and we did, like you mentioned, humongous, I am continued to be struck by his kind of workman like ability to, you know, I think on previous podcasts, I've mentioned that I find a lot of his movies are almost there in terms of style. Like there'll be very, very striking moments moments and very, very, you know, well executed um, moments of like cross cutting and editing and match cuts. And and I think the more that I watch his movies, the more I'm struck by it not being almost there, but more just being like like workman like and mm-hmm. in it. But in a way that isn't, you know, a negative. It's not like he's, you know, oh, I'm only going to put so much effort in and it's only going to be so good. But yeah, I think yeah, his yeah. movies have an atmosphere, especially this and humongous mm-hmm. that really capture two different types of atmosphere you know humongous is very much a different type of spooky atmosphere on the island than mm. this movie but this movie also kind of captures that sort of you're waiting for the other shoe to drop yeah, yeah, yeah for sure true. i also think going into prom night and expecting to be like overwhelmed with like visual excess or anything you know mm-hmm. like which happens with a lot of horror movies not necessarily slasher movies but you know um it's not the right way to approach it i feel um but the way i went in like zero expectations it's kind of funny like i started watching it uh during the day and uh michelle was sitting next to me uh playing animal crossing but then the movie kind of caught her attention so i guess she she liked it as well which i thought was interesting because she's not she hasn't seen a lot of slashers like she's probably seen a friday the 13th but other than that it's not really her thing uh one thing michelle really didn't like about the movie was lou <laughs> it was kind of funny like she just kept groaning in disgust every time he was on screen um <laughs> with that unibrow <laughs> which yeah i guess i kind of get it like she basically screamed when his head goes off um yeah which which is such a gnarly kill in in prom night yeah. like it's the only one that's so graphic really yeah Uh, Yeah. and it's it's just a great scene as well like uh, the lights going off and his hat being lopped off and yeah um that's that's great (laughs) can we talk about lou for a second because um so i love lou and i love slick and i'm putting them together oh yeah slick is the best (laughs) even though they're two different diverse characters i want to talk a little bit something i wrote about in my dissertation um is that what i think makes them so compelling is so lou's a bully right there are things about him i like um that actually about the character and also i think the actor's really good he's fun to watch but but lou and so the whole premise of the film is that these kids accidentally kill this younger girl and then they decide to keep it a secret but what happens is six years pass and there's four of them three of them insinuate themselves into the dead girl's sister's life and act like there's no big deal that they're her Mm -hmm. friend even though they were responsible for murdering her sister which has wrecked their family their family is totally broken and Mm -hmm. and um and so they're horrible. And so when they die, yeah. you're like, well, I mean, what? And so so the thing about Lou and Slick that's so interesting is because that they play outsider characters. We have a drug dealer, basically, and a bully. Um, because they are not attached to the crime, they are actually more sympathetic 
in a way. Mm. And you don't really see that in a lot of those movies. Like, the bully is just the bully. So, like, the burning, oh, what's that guy's name? You know, I need my lubricated rubbers. You know what I'm talking about? That guy? Like, you just don't (laughs) like that guy. But Lou is the equivalent of him. But there's something sympathetic about him at the same time. And I think it's because of the premise of this film. And that's, I love that the outsider characters are the most sympathetic because you don't always see that. So that's like an, um, something that's unexpected. And, and I don't know your wife or girlfriend at all, but one of the things mm. that Prom Night did when it came out is that it marketed itself towards women. And the campaign, if you look at the lobby cards, were meant to be attractive to women. And so, like, you see a lot of highlighting of the dance, the romance oh, yeah. in the dance, um, and also um, the friendship which we'll talk about when we get to Killer Party. And so, like, there's a really great lobby card of uh, the three girls um, and maybe that fourth blonde girl that shows up at being their friend at the end, and I never know the character's name, and Lou, and they're walking down the hallway. So it's one of those opening scenes when they're at Hamilton High. And mm-hmm. um, and all of them have their eyes fixated on Kim, you know, the Jamie Lee Curtis character. And so the whole point was to sort of show the strength of the lead female, but uh, also there's a dynamic where you see the, the women bonding too, as they're walking down the hall mm-hmm, together. Mm-hmm. And so they were very specific to try to attract a female audience with that film. Like they, they set out to do that at least in the advertising campaign. But I do think that the dynamic between the women is interesting. And yeah, I, do, I could see other women being intrigued by it as well, because Female bonding's great, but also there's a lot of female betrayal, like there is with men. But there, when you're growing up and, and you're navigating the waters of young adulthood, um, there is a lot of stuff that happens that can be very negative with other women. And yeah, I think yeah, this yeah. film really captures that in the metaphor. So so I could see women really being drawn to this as compared to something like, say, Maniac, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Michelle definitely wouldn't have perked up during Maniac, I feel. Uh, Prom Night is like more her speed, probably. We, we also watched Prom Night 2 uh, the day after, so like she asked to watch the sequel. <laughs> but yeah, no, in Prom Night as well, like it's kind of brutal and yeah, kind of harsh when the killings happen because you spend a lot of time getting to know the characters, like even if some of them aren't the most upstanding people, they're also like teenagers who do stupid things, so they're, it's not like they're irredeemable. Um, but yeah, it's that like like female camaraderie, but also the betrayal aspect, and yeah, there's a lot going on there. Well, the guy who created the story, he didn't write the screenplay, is Robert Guza Jr., and he would go on to become the head writer for General Hospital for years. And okay. it makes sense because this movie and a lot of horror movies are like they have a sense of melodrama to them. Mm-hmm. And there really is a very soapy story going on inside of the film. And so it's not surprising to me that somebody who created the idea would go on to work in soaps. So and mm-hmm. women love soaps. Right. I don't want to stereotype. Them. I'm a huge soap fan. And so I, I so I think there's a lot of elements here that maybe women who don't normally like these type of movies might find attractive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like uh, when I was making notes about the movie, like melodramatic and soapy were definitely like words that were coming to mind when I thought about like what's going on in the plot outside of the slashing for sure. Probably more so than a lot of other slashers. Like there, there is a lot of that kind of like padding plot in a lot of slashers, but this movie is definitely a bit more, you know, like you're saying, melodramatic. There's a lot of that kind of like characterization and the relationships between them. There's more going on there for sure. Yeah, 
Yeah, and it's yeah. it's definitely like um, part of the story, so it's not filler at all. Like it all leads to the end, mm-hmm. and so everything actually is working in in what's the word I want to say? Working in favor of the end. Yeah, so mm-hmm. it's got you know there's an end point there, and everything connects, and so that slashers don't always do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also thought it was interesting in this movie. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, Amanda, but uh, I think the first person who gets killed uh, ends up being Kelly. Yes. And and it happens like right after she refuses to have sex with a, a baby Jeff Wincott. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. which, which isn't usually how it goes in slasher movies, from my memory at least. Like usually it's the people who are promiscuous who get killed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I thought was kind of like an interesting subversion, even though I don't know how much of that was intended to be a subversion. Yeah, I would say that might be unintentional, but I've actually never thought about that. But yeah, that is really interesting that the virginal character would get it first because Kim yeah. has had sex. She kind of talks about it. And yeah. and she's not virginal at all, and and she's very comfortable with her body, obviously, because the way she dances and everything. And so, yeah. so it is kind of interesting. It is a subversion that I actually I want to go back and rewrite my paper now, so I can because <laughs> that's really fascinating. Well, happy to inspire. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think one thing I have to mention though are the disco sequences in this movie, <laughs> which just absolutely slay. Uh, both both the dance and the chase part, like when that prom night song kicks in. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that was so good. <laughs> yeah, so much about like that second half of the film is, uh, or I guess the third act really is so amazing. And I love also, so one of the things that makes the movie so appealing to me is so like at the opening I was talking about when they're going through Hamilton High, it feels like a real high school. And I guess they really did use mm-hmm. high school, but it feels very authentic, even though I think the actors look older than 17, but, but I can feel it. Right. And so the prom is like in their gym. And it's really nice, but it also feels like a regular prom. And so as compared to maybe, well, I guess it's in the gym too. I guess they hyper-stylized the prom and carry here. It just feels like a, like a prom you would see almost mm-hmm. anywhere. Totally. And it, that really adds to the flavor of it. But yes, the disco dancing, like they they actually have like disco cam. Cause you know, after mm-hmm. they do their yeah. big number to get Wendy all upset and they're holding each other and they're moving in that circle. And then the camera is like the point of view of uh, Nick looking at Kim and their, mm-hmm. her hair is moving in the, like the wind of their turns. And it's so amazing amazing like i don't even yeah. know how long it took them to set up that dance number and she's an amazing dancer yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> she must she needs to go dancing with the stars because i feel like she <laughs> would just be amazing on it yeah there was like a couple shots at first where i was like oh are they like using a double or trying to hide and then i was like oh no definitely not like she's given it <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally. it's great and it's just like and she's just perfectly built for that like she's just got this yeah. beautiful figure and the way she moves and there's this i'm thinking the only reason i'm bringing that up is because there's this part when the audience congregates back into the dance floor and she's clapping her hands over her head and she's got this just mm-hmm. beautiful like long straight figure like a dancer's body it's just it's so yeah, it's absolutely. so awesome like it's just an incredible scene it is yeah is there anything else that we want to talk about before we move on from prom night well, there's like 10,000 things I could talk about, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like, um, that would be a lot. So, <laughs> but, um, you guys have brought up some really interesting elements, like at the virginal thing and, and it is, it does subvert itself in a lot of ways, which I think makes it so interesting. And the ending is so, I don't know if we want to talk about the end, how like we felt about the end since you guys have been revisiting this for the first time in a long time. Yeah. I didn't guess it. 
Uh, that's definitely for sure. I wasn't mm-hmm. like watching the movie, you know, a lot of slashers, like, y- y- you know, you always talk about slashers as being kind of based on the whodunit. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes that leads to movies where the killer is very obvious or the red herrings are very obvious. And I felt like for sure prom night when it came to the end, I had my thoughts about who it was going to be, but I definitely wasn't like, that's who it is. You know, like I said, I couldn't remember like going into the movie. I was like, Oh yeah, this is the one where Leslie Nielsen's character ends up having done it, but that's not true at all. It's the song, <laughs> it's the song character. So, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Like uh, a little while ago, I mentioned that I found the killer sympathetic, like maybe more so than others, because like for most of the movie, he's a very human character. Yeah. Which, if you look at something like The Burning and 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 stuff. Um, they start off as very human, but then something happens, and then the rest of the movie they're basically killer. But this guy is just um, a brother, a friend, uh, just another high school kid. And I don't know, like the way they frame the ending and with the embrace and everything, it's just very heartbreaking. Yes. And then that mm. song comes on, the Fade to Black song. Yeah. And that song yeah. is actually the movie. Like it breaks down sort of his psychological state. You know, in the lyrics, which I love, Paul Zaza did a really great uh, thing with the music. Because if you listen to, so apparently they were going to use real disco hits. And then they were like, oh, that's not going to be uh, financially fly, no. <laughs> yeah, feasible for us. So so they wanted to create songs that sounded enough like the hit songs they were going to use, but then not enough to get sued. And Paul Zaza created this incredible soundtrack. But if you listen to the lyrics, Love Me Till I Die, you know, like there's they're all pointing fingers towards what the movie is about which is really amazing. Um, but yeah, I think the ending has such a really deep impact. It really sticks with me. It's like, it's really sad. And, and just a theory I have is it's, it took me like 10 viewings to really figure out what was happening, but you'll notice that when they take off the hockey mask, um, or whatever, baklava or whatever we call them. Um, I always say baklava, balaklava. I'm sorry. I'm really bad about that. Um, (laughs) cake on his face. So like, um, when they take off his mask, um, you'll notice he's wearing red lipstick, right? And his, the mom had been missing her tube of lipstick before the prom. She'd ask him, do you know where my lipstick is? The really red. Oh, lipstick. Yeah. And I think that he's Robin. Like he's the little girl that died because he sees her death. But not only that, she's the twin, right? So I always wonder like oh. when, how much of her death does he feel? right when she's gone and how much of her does he take on because they were twins and so he's to me he's not really the killer in a way as robin's the killer Mm -hmm. you know and and he's so messed up but that's a very it's extreme but that's a very accurate response to loss and that you sort of bifurcate or you split and because you have to live your life like everybody else, the world doesn't stop, but then you also have this dark side that's like dealing with the impact of what you've lost. And so his character is kind of doing that in a, in a more physical way. And, um, mm-hmm. and so every time I watch the ending of the movie, it's very upsetting for me. Like, even though I know what's going to happen, like when she looks in his eyes and she's like, Oh my God, I recognize mm-hmm. who I've just yeah. killed. Cause she's killed her brother basically. And he's dying in her arms. And it's just, it really gets to me. I, that, it just sets this film apart in so many different ways. Yeah. And he, you know, like, doesn't he yell out Robin's name? I think he does. Before he dies. And, and, and it's definitely for, for Kim's character. It's definitely like, yeah, I, you know, I've lost another 
sibling mm -hmm. and yeah. you know because of this thing that happened in the past i think that was another thing that we talked about in when we watched uh paul lynch's humongous was that it was a movie about something horrific yeah. that happened and and tracing the shock waves of this horrific event all the way to the end of the movie where it has like completely affected yet another person and I feel like this movie does a bit of a similar thing where it's like this horrific accident, you know, you can trace the lines of, you know, grief and, and trauma all the way through to this like horrible ending where another sibling is lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's what I think makes the film so good. And also just real briefly before we move on, Wendy is a queen. <laughs> she is a queen. I Agreed. love the bad girl in this movie. She's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So from prom night in 1980, we go forward six years to Killer Party in 1986. Johnson, Elaine Wilkes, uh, Martin Hewitt, and more. Paul Bartel as well, directed by William Fruet. By the end of the dance, some of the sorority sisters were dead on their feet. Synopsis, three sorority pledges are tasked with ensuring that the gals of Sigma Alpha Phi throw a killer party at an abandoned fraternity house. Unfortunately, a vengeful spirit decides to take the killer epithet literally with a special appearance from 80s hair metal titans white sister <laughs> also distributed by astral films in canada and shot in and around toronto ontario this was a movie that i had seen before like i mentioned before growing up around horror fans there was definitely a strain of horror fan that was was going to slashers for the gore going to slashers for the kind of raucous wild vibes and this was another movie that for a certain period of my life i felt like was getting a certain rep in terms of whether or not it was quote unquote good or not. And when I finally watched it, you know, it was one of those moments where I was like, I don't really understand what people are talking about because this movie rules. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so that was my kind of experience when I first watched Killer Party. And I was really excited to watch it again for the podcast today. But uh, what about you too? Oh, this is like one of my all time favorite movies. I've seen it 10,000 times. I'll see it 10,000 more. It's like hanging out with friends for like 75 minutes and then it's complete mayhem for the last 15 or 20 and it defies all expectation it's it's like it's <laughs> genre defying because it's got so many different things happening it's like teen sex comedy possession and slasher all mixed in in this weird mm -hmm, yeah sort of hodgepodge of whatever with a buttload excuse my french there of <laughs> amazing really talented actors who come across as very real people and the friendship, and we'll talk a little bit about that hopefully. Um, yes. Of so organic and real that you can't help but love the three leads with all your heart. It's just, it's it's such a great film. Every time I watch it, it makes me feel good, even though it, again, a very, it's like Prom Night in that it has a very dark ending. Yeah. Yeah. You know, surprisingly dark. But, but for the first 88 minutes of it, it's just a joy. 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I, I just think it's this is a very, very likable movie if you want it to be. Like, you kind of have to be okay with just hanging out with these characters because it's it's not necessarily a suspenseful movie, uh, like only really giving you glimpses of something that doesn't take place until maybe like the f last 50 minutes of the movie. But yeah, I just like the vibe of this movie. I like the dynamic of the three girls a lot. Uh, Jennifer, who reminded me a whole lot of uh, Sybil Shepherd. Mm. Phoebe, who's more of a Linda Blair type. And um, Sherry Birch as Vivia, who's like one of my favorite horror movie characters. Ever, easily. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's kind of reminded me of like Michelle Pfeiffer in Batman Returns, like that Selena Kyle kind of thing going on. <laughs> uh, I love when she trolls the sorority during their initiation and basically gets in because she's good at pranking. Uh, I, I love her dorky room for improvement joke yeah, she makes. Yes. That's so good. Like, Dan didn't remember that, but, uh, like, at one point she's making out with the Martin guy, and she asks him, like, what's the largest room in the world? Yeah. <laughs> room for improvement. Well, that scene is so great because she's like kiss me where here and she points at her elbow and, yeah. and also what does he say he says you're so sensuous and she's like i gargle with musk and like yeah. <laughs> that's so good so good i really enjoy the characterizations in this movie like i i i really enjoyed prom night and and the, the soapiness of it but f f of these two movies when i when i was revisiting this one i was very struck by and and maybe it is because it's like three different types of movies and I have a soft spot for when a movie decides to be every movie, not just yeah. one movie. Um, but I do, I do feel like the, the main characters and their kind of relationship is really strong and really, really not, not only strong and, and, you know, interesting, but it's also very entertaining. Their kind of back and forth and their relationships with one another. I really, really enjoyed that. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah absolutely. It's really good. I just want to name drop a book here called Blood Money. Um, it's written by a guy named Richard Knoll. And so we've, I mentioned Viridika and I mentioned Carol Clover, but to me, Blood Money is the ultimate book about why women might like slashers and um it's only in a couple chapters but he wrote uh, a lot about um how these movies were actually made for a female audience and one of the things he did was he did he took an old so when carol clover did her research she basically had friends at video stores like make a tally of who was renting horror movies and she it was like six video stores it was very like um informal and she based all of her opinions on the fact that more men were renting them. And so she wrote her book sort of with the, what are the men thinking when they watch horror? Well, Richard Knoll, hmm. he talks, he takes all of that kind of theory and throws it out the window. And he talks a lot about how movies are marketed and um, what, where the seeds of these things come from. And he talks about how a lot of slasher movies are looking for a female audience. And he used this poll from the New York Times that actually, um, I would maybe it was done in New York, 55% of the audience was made up of women for slasher films mm -hmm. in the heyday. So a lot of those women are probably on dates or whatever, but that's a, that's the majority of people were, were women. And so filmmakers like Bob Clark, when he made Black Christmas, he wrote in that abortion line because he wanted some air of second wave feminism in there because that's what was happening mm -hmm. in the country. And so he got yeah. this really amazing um, autonomous lead, right, in the film that women could relate to. So there was gore and violence and all that stuff, but there was also like this really cool woman that that was reflective of what was happening to women in the audiences, right? So they could see themselves. So 
I don't think it's intentional when they make Killer Party, but he, so Richard Noll talks a lot about female friendship and the dynamic of that in Halloween in particular, which were the dialogue for the women was written by Deborah Hill. Yeah, Deborah mm-hmm. Hill. Right, because John Carpenter wanted them to feel very real to the women watching the film. So there's always been a sensitivity to women, regardless of what Carol Clover or anybody else, Siskel Niebert, have said. And this film, I guess when Barney Cohen wrote it, um, maybe he had that in mind. I'm not really sure. I mean, the chemistry of the three women is wouldn't have been the same with different actors. So obviously casting it was important. But there's there's definitely the power of three is in we saw it in prom night. It was different. But you see these like kind of dynamic groups of women in all kinds of slasher movies. And this movie just does it better than the others. Um, and Richard Noll doesn't write about this movie, but when I was reading Blood Money, I was really struck by that dynamic and it helped me sort of understand the things that I was seeing in these movies that I wasn't recognizing as being empowering for me as a female viewer. So, so Killer Party is, um, I don't think there's anything in there where I think William Fruitt or Barney Cohen sat down, sat down and they said, let's look at the subtext and see what we can do. <laughs> yeah. But but inevitably, somewhere in the back of their mind, they were thinking about the women. And um, and they made a really kick-ass uh, film that's untouchable in terms of the chemistry like that. You know what I mean? And, and it just makes you care about the women that much more at the end, you know? Yeah, and Barney Cohen, uh, writer of uh, the final chapter right. as well, Friday the 13th. Right. Which, <laughs> which has one of the best, most underrated final girls because I always forget, because I love the girl in part two. Amy Steele's great, and every, she's oh, everybody's yeah. favorite. But the thing about the girl in part four, <laughs> Kimberly Beck plays her, is that she's really resourceful, but she is terrified in a way that's really relatable like so every time mm-hmm. i watch that and i get really caught up in like the horror of it she's really good and um and so i think barney cohen's just really good at sort of building these women that are interesting yeah also kind of interesting that uh, barney cohen um apparently paul bartell's character professor zito that's a reference to the director of part four yeah. as well, Joseph Zito. Joseph Zito. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That kind of I did forgot that they worked together. I always wondered if um, Frank Zito from Maniac uh, was inspired. Mm. The name was inspired because William Lustig and Frank Zito were friends. I met them together, actually, and they're buddies. Oh, cool. And so, um, so Frank Zito gets around. He has a really great uh, reputation, I think, in the filmmaking yeah. world. Yeah, it's it, it's kind of funny about this movie. Like, I come again with this movie. I completely forgot about a pretty essential thing, like the double fake opening of this oh, movie. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, obviously, I didn't forget about that white sister video, <laughs> but just the fact that it starts out with a with a couple watching a horror movie at the drive-in. But yeah, how do you guys feel about that opening? Like, I know uh, <laughs> there's people who kind of hate the fact that that's part uh, of the movie because really? it sets up some expectations. But yeah, just like specifically the fact that it starts with a music video that has nothing to do with it. It's the best. And I don't understand why you wouldn't love it. (laughs) I agree. Yeah, because it defies expectation. But also what's so interesting, by the way, I have that White Sister album that that song's on. Oh, man. It's amazing. amazing. That whole record is really good. Um, But um, something that occurred to me yesterday that I never thought of before was that there's three openings, right? So it starts with that funeral. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then it moves into where they're watching the movie of the funeral and then it becomes a music video. And then we see Phoebe watching the music yeah. video. Yeah. Right. And the movie itself, as I said, is three different films because it's a possession film, um, a slasher and a teen sex comedy. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. it's actually like three threes and three girls. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like, so I, I kind cool. of feel like maybe that was purposeful in a way to show you that it's not going to follow any blueprint. Yeah, and yeah, also, yeah. who doesn't love movies? Like, you remember that movie Anguish 
with um yeah. Oh, yeah. Michael Lerner and Zelda Rubenstein. Like that movie yeah. it defies all expectation too. And that's what makes it so good. And mm. so like I want to go to a movie where I think I'm watching something and I get comfortable and all of a sudden I've been ripped out oh, of yeah, that same. world. I, it's fun. It's great, yeah. you know. Have you ever seen uh Grotesque Linda Blair movie? Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Such a good movie. Yeah, that movie as well. It's just like five different movies and yeah. <laughs> you just don't know where to, where it's going at all. The <laughs> ending of that movie is wild. Yeah, that's true. And so I love that. I love to just think that, I mean Psycho did it. So why can't we just mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying this is Psycho, but it's like why can't <laughs> we appreciate the fact that we're following something and then all of a sudden we're changed we have to change gears, you know? Yeah. I yeah, agree. and I feel like you know, Carlo, I I've gotten that vibe as well in terms of people that have said kind of the opening makes you expect like you're going to see something that you know has more commentary or is trying to skewer or like have a certain type of like sly humor about you know the the genre or something along those lines i'm not i don't know i don't really understand that i think that the sort of in threes thing is kind of mind-blowing to me to realize right now as you mention it but it, yeah. it totally yeah, makes sense i'd love sense. to ask like like, uh, I don't know, William Furey or uh, Barney Cohen about that. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> but, but also what, what you say is so funny because, like, people complain that, oh, slasher films are all the same, and then you do something different, and then they're like, oh, I hate it. And it's exactly. like, what yeah, exactly. do you want, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally. I, I 100% agree. I, I love seeing movies take a big swing. Sometimes, you know, it depends on the movie, but oftentimes I enjoy a movie that tries too hard to do too many things than a movie that does you know one thing just well enough and yeah and and but but killer party isn't even that killer party isn't a movie that's trying to do too much and isn't um succeeding it's a movie that's doing a a number of things that consistently keep you surprised and entertained as the movie goes on Mm -hmm. i think you know it is a bummer that the murder sequences were cut um, but but for me, you know, one of my favorite Friday the 13th movies is New Blood, and that was the mm-hmm. one that was, you know, cut the most. But it's the one that's doing something different and having a lot of fun. It turns it into, like, a straight-up monster movie, and, you know, that's what Killer Party is doing. It's having a lot of fun, but it still has really great characters, and it still has really fun dialogue and a good script, and it's really entertaining. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It also has a lot in common with Prom Night when you think about it. Like, it's a lot of, like, hanging out and, like, female uh, bonding, and it's out of the school, obviously. Another fun thing was, like, you've got a fairly atypical couple in both of them that I really like. Like, in Prom Night, you've got uh, Jude and, and Seymour, a.k.a. Slick, oh, and yeah. in Killer Party, you've got, uh, after, like, a bit of a time skip... Vivian and Martin. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool that's, as well. That's an interesting uh, comparison. I, the thing about Martin, so it's one of the things that Killer Party does that is a little frustrating for me is that it kind of starts stories that it doesn't finish. And what I mean is like little mm. stories. So like when he's making out with Vivian in the car, he's looking in Jennifer's window and, and we never really see like the impact of like him crushing on the other girl. Yeah, but it feels yeah. like they're starting that story. And then yeah. also yeah. when Veronica tells Vivian, you know, if you can't, the only reason why you're here is because you know how to make good pranks. You think yeah. it's going to lead to something where she's going to be really treated poorly by the sisters or something, but you never really see mm. the impact of the fact that she's just got in barely because she did one cool thing, right? So, yeah. so like, um, I want those stories, but that's, that's just because I want the movie to go on forever. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, same, same. 
uh, yeah, it's, it's funny, like all that April Fool's Day stuff in here. Um, apparently, like, what was a working title for this, like April Fool or April Fools? Because while I was watching it without having that information, I thought to myself, this should have been called like April Fool's Night. That would have been a perfect title because they're already leaning so hard into the whole April Fool's thing with the video as well. Yes, right. The music, with the music video. But then they didn't want to do that because April Fool's Day had just come out in 86, like a month before Killer Party. But Killer Party was shelved for two years. So when they finished it, was it called April Fool's? And then when they finally decided to release it, they probably changed the title, I have to assume. Definitely. And and I, I honestly think that this movie also kind of has, you know, a bit in common with April Fool's Day because both of those movies are really fun and and having a lot of no i don't know not cheeky fun but they're both just movies that they're not taking the piss of the genre but they're also mm, not they're having fun with it yeah they're, they're not with it, adhering yeah. to exactly what you're supposed to be yeah yeah how do you feel about uh, april fool's day amanda Oh, I love April Fool's Day. Now, that's the one I haven't seen as much as the others. That one also kind of defies, because the ending is like, well, oh, well, I don't want to spoil it here, but like, like, (laughs) whoa, like, I didn't see that coming. And like, and like, it kind of makes it not a slasher in a way. And it's really fascinating. But it also kind of has a dark ending because of the one girl. Yeah. um, Yeah. That something may happen. It's interesting. But I love that one because, because of the dynamic of the friends. So like uh, Eric Threefall from the um, Hysteria Continues, one of the things he said, um, he said it several times, is that the mark of a good horror movie or slasher movie is when you don't even care if they're slashing in it because you're mm-hmm. just hanging out with people and you really like them. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and April Fool's Day has that as well as Killer Party. Um, that just element where I get to spend all day. They're rich snobs, but they're really fun. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're into their debauchery. There's that really great scene where they walk in. One of the girls walks in on... Uh, a couple having sex, but their arms and their hands are like, their legs are in these weird positions, so you can't tell exactly what's happening in the scene. And like, it just does these funny things that are like, <laughs> great, you know, and it makes you kind of like the characters because they're wild and they're fun. And, and, um, and so yeah, it's a really good movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. Uh, I know you agree as well, Dan. Um, <laughs> we both really like Killer, um, well, Killer Party as well, but April Fool's Day yeah. as well. Isn't the director of that Fred Walton? Yeah. April Fool's Day? Right. Oh, yeah. He yeah. also did the, uh, when a stranger calls movies yeah and i believe the second one oh i love that movie the, yeah. se- the second a, movie is so one. good that's so yeah. good it's so good. it's creepy i can't hardly watch the opening 15 minutes by myself oh, yeah it's so good. yeah <laughs> I, one of the things that I thought was funny about, so, you know, I, I pulled all the trivia for Killer Party. There's There were some interesting things, but one of the funny things that made me laugh was, you know, there's this piece of trivia about Killer Party, like, well, the, you know, the second half of the movie is supposed to take place in spring, but, you oh, know, yeah. specifically on April Fool's, but, you know, when they shot, it was very cold, and you can see snowflakes, and I'm, like, looking at the calendar today, like, April 18th, like, it snowed the other day here. <laughs> like, that's not that weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. Maybe in America, I, mean, I don't think we get as much snow in April. Yeah. <laughs> well, you Canadians, like this is summer weather. You're like, oh, it's forty it's out. And you're true. in shorts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny in that movie. Like supposedly, yeah. Well, it's filmed in October, but then, I mean, the flash forward is so subtle. I think the first time I watched this movie, I just completely missed it. Um, but it like flash forwards to March. Yeah. yeah. And and like like there's a couple of 
giveaways. Like first is when the girl who runs the sorority, she asks Vivia to cook up some pranks for the April masquerade, she calls it, mm -hmm. which ultimately feels like a Halloween party. Yeah, it I mean, does. For being it does. honest, and and then there's a meeting that takes place with the with the school school faculty, which I honestly forget what that meeting is exactly about. But there's a paper on the door that reads like March meeting or something as well. Um, but yeah, if you zone out, you'll you'll miss those hints and the rest. Like the entire movie feels like it's definitely set in the same season. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Mm. Do you two agree or disagree? So I've seen some sentiment about this movie around the you know the 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 supernatural element with this Alan character. Do you feel like the movie would benefit with more? you know, explanation or backstory around that stuff? Because I've seen some people say, like, y you don't get as good of a sense of the revenge and stuff at the end of the movie because we don't we don't spend enough time on that story. Well, I think the, the part that confuses me about it is that when Mrs. Henshaw gets killed, so she's the first death, I guess, oh, from yeah. Alan, and when she's fixing the stairs, mm -hmm. which is another gotcha because, like, you see the hammer go up and then she's actually fixing the one. Yeah. Those stairs are falling apart. She's fixing one thing. Like, it's so <laughs> weird why she does that. But you, when, when the ore comes, so there's, like, a little ore that hits her over the mm -hmm. head, but you see human hands. Yeah. On the oar. And I think yeah. maybe when Dr. Zito gets killed, um, you see the hand with the wires going into his ear or whatever. And it's like her head or whatever it does. And it's like, it's like who belongs to those hands? Yeah, yeah exactly. Alan exactly. Is, a, is a ghost as far as I can tell. So like, I don't, is it, is it Jennifer? But it doesn't look like female hands to me, what little you can see. And so it's, so I think, yeah, I think the Alan story is really almost like an afterthought. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Could it have been, wasn't there something around the Alan being involved in like, you know, they were conjuring evil and stuff? Maybe there's like a cult that, you know, could Ooh. have been like, I'm going to try and stop people from coming into this house and getting Alan because <laughs> I don't know. I mean, start writing your fan fiction. Yeah, I guess. yeah there, exactly. There could be. I mean, it would be like Halloween 6, right? Yeah. So like yeah. the cult of Alan. But like, um, yeah, anything like that would le or at least cut out the part with the hands. So it just looks mm -hmm. like a like it's moving on its own would have been more successful to me. Doesn't she even say like, what are you doing here yes. or something? Yeah. And if it was like, if that was Alan, she would know yeah she almost acts like she knows he's haunting the house like when she's talking to the headstone you get the feeling that she has some general idea like okay alan these are nice girls please don't hurt them you know yeah <laughs> I, d I do like that all that stuff is in the movie like i don't necessarily mean like the details but just like demonic possession oh sure stuff. yeah that's great i'm just a sucker for that uh you know like a lot of demon possession movies owe a lot to uh, well, The Exorcist is an obvious one, but also Evil Dead. And mm. there was some big Evil Dead energy coming from Jennifer in her performance, which I thought was just amazing. Um, like, I love any movie that has demon voice. Like, when she says April Fool, assholes. Yeah. Oh, so good. That's, that's just the best. Everything I about the aesthetic of the film changes, too. Like, even if you look at the way mm. it's lit, like, in the angles, like, everything changes. And it becomes, like, a really, like, a real horror movie. But yeah. the best part about Jennifer's Possession, aside from the fact that I think Joanna Johnson was just, like, really enjoying what mm -hmm. she was doing, is when they have her walking on the ceiling, but you can tell they've just turned the camera upside down, and they've spray-painted yeah. her hair to make it look like it's dangling. <laughs> so it's like totally sticking straight up, but she's up, but they've turned the camera's angle so it looks like she's upside down. Like just mm -hmm. the stuff they do in her possession sequence is just so amazing and so much fun. And when I show this movie to people who've never seen it, um, 
they they're watching it and they enjoy it and then they get to the possession stuff and they don't know how to react Mm -hmm. you know like oh my god what am i looking at now what am i looking at and they start to kind of freak out over it and it's amazing yeah i like that it's there just enough that so when it becomes a possession movie you're like oh yeah they mentioned something about like the ritual and the guy alan dying and the guillotine and and now all of a sudden here here they are yeah (laughs) yeah yeah and and during the initiation as well with the three girls there's like a like a little moment where jennifer gets possessed for like a second Mm -hmm. so it's it's hinted at but It's so much fun. I like it a lot. It's interesting to me as a person who has lived in Toronto because, you know, they shoot on the U of T in and around the U of T campus. And that opening where they're kind of like going down the street and you're and passing all the like frat houses and stuff. Mm -hmm. I I used to work in the U of T library. And so that was like a street that like I walked down like all the time. (laughs) I would love it. Yeah. Because like Mm -hmm. all those kind of like frat houses were still, you know, still around. They'd been, you know kept up and stuff and so it was really cool to watch and be like oh yeah that street i used to walk down every day yeah cool i'd have to live in one of the frat houses i'd have to like just be so close to where they shot it i've always wanted to go to that college i always wondered where it was because it's a really beautiful school and when i was growing up and I thought I would go to like college, which I didn't for many years, but I always envisioned like those kind of Ivy League looking schools and yeah. Killer mm-hmm. Party just embraces that sort of really old school mm-hmm. aesthetic mm-hmm. that I love so much. Totally. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an interesting period of, of William Perret's career. I don't love Blue Monkey from 87, but I think Blue Monkey and Killer Party are really interesting, like kind of... Um, colorful you know fun kind of takes on horror genres and i find that interesting he did a movie in 84 called bedroom eyes i haven't oh, seen I that i love bedroom eyes is it good I, okay oh, it's so good it's so good i can't even tell you how good that movie is okay oh. i gotta watch it i have it on vhs <laughs> yeah it's really fun i don't want to say it defies expectations too but um it's a little different than a lot well it's pre it's precursor to a lot of the erotic thrillers that we would see like post night mm-hmm. eyes mm. But um, so it's kind of setting the blueprint, but it does some really cool stuff. And it's got gr- it's got a great lead actor whose name I think it's Kip Gilman. Yes, is Kip really, Gilman. really good in it. Yeah. Oh, so I have to watch that because I, I feel like this kind of playful, you know, early to mid 80s. William Frey is really fun and interesting. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I forgot he made that. The sequel's really weird too. Um, if you get a chance to see the sequel, because it's the same Isn't characters. Isn't that like with Wings Hauser? It is, that? and Linda Blair. It's the same yeah. characters, but they're played by different actors, and I oh. almost didn't get how directly related it was. Except I've seen Bedroom Eyes <laughs> enough that I recognize the character names and stuff. Yeah. But uh, it's really, it's a really weird sequel. I didn't oh. even know they made a sequel. Yeah, they did. Yeah, I have that watch listed because, like, I love Wings Hauser oh, and yes. Linda Blair, so yes. I kind of need to see it. It's fine. It's, it's not as good as the uh, first one but it's interesting okay i'll watch both uh, eventually <laughs> for sure yeah so i guess that's three thumbs up for killer party for sure yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah it's a it's a fantastic movie i don't know if it's if it's been released on blu-ray or anything no it hasn't it's on dvd through warner archives and i'm i'm just going to put this out there i don't know who's listening but i've already begged them to do the commentary if they release it on blu-ray yeah and if anybody in the world gets the rights to do it internationally releases it and i'm not on the commentary i'm going to be so mad because (laughs) there's so many things about this movie that are wonderful and i just want to be attached to it i just love it so much yeah it's it's a lot of fun and really really great 
Um, and I just realized, not to take it too far back to Bedroom Eyes, but Bedroom Eyes 2, written by Jerry Ciceritti, who we talked about oh. in a previous episode, which yeah, is an yeah. interesting connection. Cool. Um, yeah, so Killer Party and Prom Night, these are two movies. They are Canadian. Unfortunately, I believe at least Prom Night, I know, is pe- trying to pass it off as American. So yeah, yeah, yeah. we talk a little bit on the show about whether or not a movie is embracing Canadiana or not. And I know that uh, Prom Night is a little bit like trying to be a bit more American. I can't remember if uh, Killer Party... No, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think they mention really anything about where it, where it is. So no. that that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, that's um, neutral. So. You accept that. Yeah, acceptable. <laughs> uh, but we've come to the point of the episode where we will decide whether or not these movies are, you know, entered into our made-up canon of Canadian horror <laughs> movies. So w- what do you two think about these movies? Are they both winners? Well, yeah. Um, I don't know who, what you construct on your list as canon, um, so it would be hard for me to say because, like, is like, are you talking about just horror in general? Because, like, David Cronenberg's movies are canon. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But then that's setting the bar, like we were talking about with John Carpenter, like, yeah. really yeah. high. Yeah, yeah, I would yeah. say think of it like if somebody came to you and said, like, I'm going to get into Canadian horror movies, would, would these two movies be something like, you, you should watch these? Yeah, I mean, if people are like, I just want to watch a movie, I'm like, Killer Party. Yeah. So, like, mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't even have to be horror. Yeah, so, like, there's so, such a wide, diverse list, but and I love them all. That's the thing. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I would say, you know, like, Prom Night, I think, gets, for me, would, would be essential on the list of, of Canadian horror movies because I think it's really important um in terms of the history it, like it was a really big movie but also I, I don't think that like not being canadian necessarily gets it out of the canon i think if anything it says you know we were trying to compete on a on a world scale and i think the fact that people still talk about prom night you know solidifies its uh its canon worthiness and then i would say killer party for me gets in the canon just because i think it's so entertaining and so fun you know, it may may not be a quote unquote important movie, but if somebody came up to me and said like, "Give me a list of Canadian horror movies," I would put Killer Party on it because I love it. Yeah, yeah, same. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it, it's both canon for me as well, easily. I mean, Prom Night started like the major Canadian slasher franchise, um, and it's also just a great movie. Like, I really, really enjoy it. And Killer Party, same. They're, they're both Canadian and they're both great. So yeah. that's all it takes, really. Awesome. It's interesting, just real quick, what you said about Killer Parties. I think maybe because it was made outside the Hollywood system, it was allowed to do the things that it did. So that would make it canon in and of itself because it kind of shows how to defy yeah. the blueprint, but you have to yeah. move out of the Hollywood system to do it. You yeah, know? Mm, for sure. Awesome. Ooh. Well, that's our episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I had a blast. Yeah. Is, is there anything that you would like to plug for people listening? Yeah, sure. Just real quick. Um, the only thing I'll mention is that recently um, my friend Bill Ackerman, who does a podcast called Supporting Characters and I, we wrote a book about Al Adamson that is coming out in the Al Adamson box set that's being released Sue Severin, I think really soon, where they took all, if you're not too familiar with Al Adamson, he made dozens of movies yeah. in, and in every genre possible. And, um, and not all of them were available to Severin because Vinegar Syndrome and other companies have released a handful of them, but the majority of his movies are all coming out in this one box set, totally remastered, mm-hmm. uh, with all kinds of neat extras and stuff. And so we wrote a book about the films, and um, Bill and I, and we're really excited about it. And um, so if you're into B-movies, 
uh, and you're not familiar with Al Adamson, this is a great place to start. Or if you love Al Adamson, this is a great way to look at back at his career because it's everything. Um, and, um, and that's going to be available soon. And I'm just really excited about it. Awesome. And you've, you've done some commentary tracks, right? I have. The most recent one that came out was actually, again, with my friend Bill. Um, we did a TV movie called Pray for the Wildcats. Oh, I have that ready to watch. It's so I've never good. seen it. Yeah, it's wild. Um, it's it's a really interesting TV movie with a lot of familiar faces. Um, Andy Griffith, Robert Reed, William Shatner, Angie mm-hmm. Dickinson, uh, Lorraine Gary from Jaws is in it. And it's it's a really neat movie. Um, it's very popular. I was really happy to be associated with it. I've done a lot of stuff. That's Sukino Lorber. Last year, I did like several commentaries with them. Um, the Made for TV Mayhem show did one together for a movie called Amazons, which oh, yeah. only came out on DVD because they couldn't get all the elements. Um, and also, I'll just mention one more. I was recently nominated for an award for a commentary I did for Don't Be Afraid of the Dark through Warner Archives. Oh. And and I'm just mentioning that because I'm really proud of it. And, um, yeah, and that's, that's a great cool. starter TV movie if you want to look at the classic era. Absolutely. Mm. Amazing. Amazing. So yes. uh, don't forget also Made for TV Mayhem. And uh, do you have a Twitter for people to follow? I do. I think it's I think it's just at Made for TV Mayhem. Okay. Awesome. So thank you for joining. You can find Carlo and I at backdashrow.com. You can find me on Twitter at YCKMD underscore and Carlo at Carlo Goes Boom. And otherwise, thank you for listening. And maybe one day I'll think of a good sign off for Hoser Horror. But until then, (laughs) (laughs) joy. Joy.